Hello, I'm Peter Ayers. Welcome to episode 24 of season one of Stages, our last episode of the year as we now come to a close. It's been a very rewarding one and I extend my respect and gratitude to all of my guests this year. They have provided terrific insight, many entertaining anecdotes and an indication of what it takes to traverse our stages. Thanks also to you who have listened. I've received much wonderful feedback and uh, I thank you for the time to engage and to let me know what you think. Like me, I know that you've learned much from our guests on stages. Our very first guest in April launching the podcast was the legendary Tony Lamond, a woman of abundant talent and huge heart. It's a delight that we're able to bookend this very first season with her son, Tony Sheldon, as our final guest for 2018. Sheldon was born into a family dynasty of performers. It would appear that his destiny was preordained. Recognition as a talented youth saw him perform on In Melbourne Tonight with Graham Kennedy and joined the workhouse in the Sydney season of the musical Oliver. As a young man, his career as an actor in plays saw him embrace a fast-growing repertoire in roles as a sensitive young man. Equus, The Glass Menagerie, and Peter Kanar's seminal Australian work, A Hard God. His breakout performance as Arnold Becker in Torch Song Trilogy quickly followed. It wasn't long before he extended his playing into the musical theatre, a form that has been a lifelong passion. Sheldon's engaging style, his colossal charm, and an extensive appreciation of the perform have provided us with perfect portrayals in shows that include The Venetian Twins, Into the Woods, The Producers, Dames at Sea, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, just to name a few, and of course, a show that has taken him around the world, given him Olivier and Tony Award nominations, and a portrait at Sardi's, the role of transsexual Bernadette, the glamorous and resilient showgirl, in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the musical. But not everything has come up roses for Sheldon. Long bouts of depression and personal upsets along the way have provided their challenges. He is frank, warm and always entertaining in detailing these. This interview was recorded earlier in the year, during the Sydney run of Priscilla. Sheldon was negotiating a back injury and he doubted that he would reach 2,000 performances in the role of Bernadette. We knew that this interview was going to air in November, so in an effort to sound current, you'll hear that a false prediction is made. Fake news, people. Fake news. Sheldon was, of course, to go on to Adelaide and Brisbane seasons of the musical and not deterred by a back injury, he went on to complete 2,006 performances in a role that commenced in 2006 and took him around the world. Since this interview, we've also learned that Sheldon will be playing the role of Grandpa Joe in Raoul Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the new musical, when it arrives in January at the Capitol Theatre Sydney. So we can look forward to seeing this man's great talents again on Australian stages. He's a true gentleman of the theatre, a captivating raconteur and a thoroughly nice man. It was an absolute delight to spend some time with Tony Sheldon. Oh, it, it was a joy. I mean, my my fear was that I wouldn't be able to do it and that I would spoil the memory for for people who saw the original. Um, but once I knew that I, I looked all right and that I had a nice wig and that I could still do the choreography without falling over, um, everything went beautifully. I, I loved that cast and I, I loved the production and the audience response was... 
astounding. It was more than I could have hoped for. So did you find that with um, muscle memory, perhaps, the, the show came back to you, the performance came back to you? No, not really. No. It, so uh, it, was... it had been seven years since I'd done it. Right. So um, there were lines that I looked at in the script and went, I have no memory of saying that. But in many cases, they said, oh, that got added after you left. <laughs> you know, like in South Africa or in Sweden or something, because there were so many other productions after we closed on Broadway around the world. And so things had crept into the script. But fortunately, Simon Phillips came back in the final week of rehearsal and um, approached it as a clean slate. So I was able to say, I don't like these improvements. Can we take them out? And perhaps add some new material. So I was able to pick up my pen and write a few new funny lines, which was great. Because indeed, right back from the workshop, I believe, you were allowed to have a creative voice with not only your, your performance, but the show? I was. I have a feeling that might have been why I was hired in the first place, because it was a very short space of time to do the show. And uh, they were mostly working how to solve the technical aspects of it. Like, the divas didn't exist in the script. So the we three guys sang everything in the show until Ross Coleman, our choreographer, said, if I don't hear a female voice soon, I'm going to scream. So that was when we, somebody brilliant came up with the idea of the divas. And then they were trying to work out how to make the bus work. So nobody was taking care of the script. And uh, once it was decided to adapt the film script, which wasn't the case when we started the workshop, it was an entirely different story that we were doing when we started. Um, I was sitting at home in my hotel room uh, and I thought, well, what if we move that fight to the dressing room scene instead of having it in the pub? And what if we do this? And and, and I'd take it in the next morning and Simon would go, great, get it typed up. Uh, so I sort of was doing unofficial dramaturg work on the show and I picked my song, my There Will Be Another Song For Me, that little middle verse of MacArthur Park, because I didn't have a song right. in the show. Right. I, and in that place there, there was a monologue about Bernadette's sex change that I felt was inappropriate and unnecessary. And I, by chance, was going through my music, because MacArthur Park was already in the show, and suddenly I thought, oh, they're not using this middle section. And I looked at the lyrics and I went, oh, this works perfectly. So I uh, was able to get that put in as, as my number. So it would seem to me that you're the ideal go-to man to work on a musical, understanding the form so much and, and having that uh, extensive knowledge of, of Broadway. and um... Well, as long as I'm invited on that understanding, because I, <laughs> I, I do tend to pipe up uh, in rehearsals probably uh, more than I should. So, But if I'm given carte blanche then I can be extremely helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so how many performances did you clock up as, as Bernadette? I didn't make it to um, 2000, sadly, because I got an injury in Sydney and had to miss some shows in Adelaide. Um, had I kept going, I would have made the 2000 mark, but I came in just under. That's an extraordinary feat. Um, how do you manage such, such long runs? I mean, that, that repetition every night... It's something I've, I've learned late in life because I wasn't good at long runs when I was young. I And it's, it's interesting watching it in young performers now that you tend to think that keeping something fresh is getting louder and bigger. 
when, in fact, it's about rethinking. It's about going back to the beginning each performance and starting your thought processes afresh and listening, responding to what the other actor's giving you. But I remember, like, doing Dracula back when I was 23, and that went on and on and on, and I... I dread to think what I was like at the end of that run. I think I was truly grotesque, but I thought I was fresh as a daisy. It was just I didn't know how to maintain a performance. As you would expect of any young actor, I guess. It's it's a learning process, isn't it? It is, it is, because people aren't taught how to do that. I mean, you talk about Dracula, which was directed by Sir Robert Helpman. It was. And I believe he came in one night with notes and said, and you, what are you doing? Yes, yes, yeah. he did. I was, I was mortified. I, I was truly you would mortified. Be, yeah. But Sir Robert was, uh, it, was, it, was an, it was an insight into how shows must have been staged in the West End in the 50s because it was a three-act play that we were instructed to arrive on the first day having learnt it, books down, on the first morning. And on the Monday, we staged Act 1. On the Tuesday, we staged Act 2. On the Wednesday, we staged Act 3. Thursday, we ran the show twice. And then we ran the show twice every day for a month with very little input from Sir Robert. Um, I guess that's very much old-school practice, is that? I I feel that that's probably what it was. It was just about drilling. Um, And indeed, John Waters, who played Dracula was asked by a radio interviewer at the time, is Sir Robert a hard taskmaster? And John said, often all that he's heard is the rattling of his jewellery, <laughs> which was true. So I opened the show thinking I was pretty terrific because nobody had told me otherwise. And then I started to get laughs. And I thought, ooh, this is the way to go. What role were you playing? I was playing Jonathan Harker, who right. was the man who kills Dracula. And I was playing a sort of very stylized sort of 1920s uh, juvenile lead, sort of very anyone for tennis. And the, the piece is very uh, campy, melodramatic. Well, is yes, it, but right? what I didn't understand was that probably it would have been funnier had I played it more truthfully. And I, I of course, succumbed to the old devil laughter that was coming my way. And so I was improving my performance, I thought, by getting funnier and funnier. And um, that was when Sir Robert came back and saw the show when we transferred to the next city and he said, I have no idea what you're doing up there because it's, it's enormous and it's, it's wrong. And I remember talking back to him and going, no, no, it's not. How can you say that? And seeing the look of shock on his face. Um, but I thought I was doing the right thing. I, I... I look back in horror at most of my career, I have to tell you, um, at some of the stuff that I must have been getting away with, you know, because I never went to an acting school, that seems clear. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I I was learning on the job. Uh, yes, you, you, you are an actor that, that has had no formal training. Um, and, look, I believe you were working on a production of a play called Spoiled, playing a young gay man having an affair with a married man played by Peter Carroll. That's right. And you asked Peter's advice about, should you go to NIDA? Tell and, me about that. And he said, I think it's too late. He said, you wouldn't cope with them and they wouldn't cope with you. Um, I'd, I had been performing 
since I was seven uh, on television, but it was that was variety stuff and musical theatre. It wasn't until I was at school that I discovered school plays and mentors like Terence Clark, who directed me in The Birthday Party, the Harold Pinter play. But I did The Real Inspector Hound. I did Murder in the Cathedral, um, Inspector Calls. Uh, and I, that was when I realised I had a talent that nobody else in the family was sort of exploiting, and that was for drama. And I fell in love with the idea of being a, a dramatic actor. And Mum had said to me when I told her I was leaving school, you know, at the end of fifth year, and leaving home, incidentally, at the same time, and she said, oh, you're going to regret this, you know, you're going to end up on the street, you're never going to work. Well, I, I booked five shows in the first year, back-to-back, five plays. And Spoiled, I think, was the fourth or the fifth. And that was when I found out that Peter had been a drama teacher. And he had worked at NIDA. I and had yep. worked at NIDA. And I said, should I go? And that was his advice. It's sort of, you might as well just keep doing what you're doing, he said, because you seem to have developed a style that's working for you and uh, they will try and break you and uh, get rid of you, which is what they do, you know. And I had been through that at the ensemble with with a director who was a bully and who tried very, very hard to, uh, to break me. There was a play called Goldilocks and the Three Bears. The Four uh, Bears. Four Bears. Our certificate. Our certificate, yes. yeah, yeah. As a young actor, you are very emotionally vulnerable. Mm. You were sort of feeling your way, were you, with creating that performance and, and you didn't have that support from the director? It was interesting. But the first show I did out of school was The Fantastics and... Catherine Brisbane wrote a review in The Australian saying Tony Sheldon has something that is not normally found in one so young. It is an ease of relations with the audience. They feel very comfortable and safe with him. And that was informative and interesting to me because I thought, yeah, I do feel very comfortable with an audience and that came from my background. Um, But... It was also a sort of a safety net in that I was getting by on charm a lot of the time. And I know this director at the ensemble, who was a method director, was trying to get me to work in a different way. But I didn't understand that vocabulary of, of the method. And so what he tried to do was stripped me of all my defences until I was just sort of raw feeling. And he, in fact, called a rehearsal the day after we opened and said, we we are calling this benefit for the benefit of Mr Sheldon and we will try and get a performance out of him. And he stopped me on every single line and said, all right, what action are you playing? Well, I, I didn't know. All right, well, then we will all sit here until Mr Sheldon works it out. And he was shaming me in front of the car. And, of course, the most crippling way to treat an actor as well. Of I mean, course, of just course. Just complete mental bl- blank, blank, block. Yeah, 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 it really was. And uh, so, of course, I was a gibbering wreck by the end of the play. And But that was what my character was as well. My character was supposed to have an enormous breakdown at the end of the second act. And so by the time I reached the breakdown, I was 
truly hysterical. And he went, that's it. That's how I want you to play the show every single night. So I did. But I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know technically how to reproduce you, that. You were feeling it every night. And, and so, of course, I was living on my nerves all day, every day. And at one night was being driven home from the Ensemble Theatre and I, I tried to open the door of the car in the middle of the Harbour Bridge and just throw myself out. Um, I was, and I was 17. I was a wreck. Were there any senior actors looking out for you in the company? Um, no, there, there were a couple of people backstage who were helping me, but see, they were all of the method too. Yes. So they all probably felt that the, this was the right thing to a, be happening. A baptism of fire for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, look, of course you come from a, a show business dynasty. Your grandparents are performers. Your mother is the magnificent Tony Lamond, who was our very first guest on stages this year. Um, so it's a lovely bookend that you're going to be finishing off uh, with this episode. Um, your aunt is Helen Reddy. Your father was Frank Sheldon, sort of one of the first Fosse dancers in, in Australia. So... Was it preordained that you were going to go into the business? Yeah, because um, I didn't know there was any other business when I was a very young child. Um, And then I was... uh, My first appearance was a birthday present on my seventh birthday, was I was allowed to sing on television. And then uh, when I was 10, I was allowed to audition for Oliver. Then I was sort of forcibly retired for a while because I was offered... Thing Noel Ferrier offered me a pantomime at the Tivoli to play Pinocchio. I was asked to audition for Annie Get Your Gun, the one that Donna Lee was in, to play um, Little Jake. And I remember crying and sobbing when I wasn't allowed to do those gigs because I wanted to keep going. But Mum and Dad were like, no, 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 your education is very important because we want you to have the choice of whether you want to continue with this. And... Um, the real problem was knowing in my heart that I wasn't as good as everybody else. I couldn't sing like mum. I couldn't dance like dad. Uh, So I didn't know how I was going to fit in. And it was the discovery that I could act that was the entree. Um, So I never really gave any serious thought to doing anything else. I guess as a child, you're not fully aware of it, but as you got older, was nepotism a concern for you? Yeah, um, and it was when I was doing the Unisexes in 1975, which was a TV series that only ended up being on air for nine nights, but we we did film for, for several weeks, and I was one of the original cast along with some quite stellar people, including Tina Bursell and Anne Grigg and um, Michelle Ford and some wonderful people. Um, but several weeks into the run, they suddenly said, oh, we're introducing the character of your mother into the show who will be this Rose Bay Jewish uh, socialite and we're casting Tony Lamond. Won't that be hilarious? Well, I thought that was the worst idea ever because I said to mum, they're all going to think I got the job because of you. And that was when she made her famous comment about, listen, I grew up being Stella Lamont's daughter and now everybody's calling me Helen Reddy's sister and in 20 years they're going to be calling me Tony Sheldon's mother, so you better get used to it because people love to pigeonhole you and, you know, if you don't like it, just get out now. 
And I thought, she's absolutely right. I'll just shut up and get on with it. Uh, you were born in Queensland, and it's um, no surprise, perhaps, given your theatrical heritage, that it was a very theatrical birth. What were the circumstances surrounding your arrival into the world? Well, Mum and Dad had uh, gone over to the Philippines to do a song and dance act, um, and that was where my mother became pregnant, I believe, and uh, then they got stranded over there by uh, their promoter, and uh, they had no money, and then finally their visas expired and they were told, you have to leave the country or we're, you know, you'll be escorted out by the police or thrown in jail or worse. Um, so they, they were saved by an offer to go to play the Theatre Royal in Brisbane. And uh, so that was where they went to basically await my birth, and as my mother said, she had big bows on her costumes that got until finally they got bigger than the costumes, and Dad choreographed. And um, then once I was born, they had enough money to return home to Melbourne. Tell me about Little Butch Sheldon. Well, that was how I got my name, uh, because uh, uh, Doris Wimp, who was um, a family friend of ours, I th- um, who was the the resident choreographer at the Royal and was a great, great friend of Dad's. Uh, I think it came from... I was all dressed up in a blue outfit or something just after I was born, and Doris said, ''Oh, doesn't he look butch?'' <laughs> and uh, the name the name stuck, yes. And so I was known as Butch Sheldon um, for, for many, many years, and certainly at the beginning of my career, uh, I was known as Little Butch. Graham Kennedy used to introduce me as Butch. What sort of child were you? Uh, I I don't know. I th- I think I I just remember being frightened all the time. <laughs> and what? Why? Why? For what reason? I don't know. No. Um, and I still am. I'm still scared most of the time of being alone or scared of the I dark. I don't know what it was. I um. I really don't know. Uh, I just loved show business. I, I was always terrified when my parents weren't there. I have memories that go right back to being a baby. And I remember the shows that I saw and I remember seeing mum and dad on TV when I was... I remember sitting in a high chair. I remember being ill as a baby. And... Um, I, I just have this weird memory of, of my parents standing in the doorway screaming at me and years later I was in a room full of clairvoyance. Now, how's that for a sentence? My mother was fascinated by clairvoyance and so we used to know a lot of them and once we were at a party with a whole bunch of them, they all started flashing off each other. It was extraordinary. They all started to say, you know, oh, I'm loving these hors d'oeuvres. Oh, did you know the Pope's coming out next year? And, and you know, it was like the strangest thing and then one of them turned to me and said, do you have chest problems? I said, yes, I've always had um, a weak uh, chest. And she said, yes, you had pneumonia as a baby and you were delirious and nobody knew. And suddenly that connected with that moment of my parents standing in the doorway going, stop it, stop it, because I wouldn't stop crying. Um, So I always have a feeling that I was a bit of a millstone around my parents' neck. Um, I don't know what sort of child I was. So the the theatre was a a chance for you to be somebody else, I guess, rather than... 
I think my whole career has always been about that. Um, when it was interesting when when I listened to your other podcasts and you asked that question about you know wh- what is it that makes you perform and and I think well yes so certainly a lot of it's about the audience but I think for me it's a, it's always been about the characters being somebody else being able to lose yourself inside somebody else's life and I think that was the aha moment about deciding to be an actor it was realizing I had a gift to lose myself inside somebody else. You've appeared on all the main stages in Australia, in, in venues large and small, in, in all sorts of um, forms of theatre, classical Shakespeare, classical plays, contemporary American, Australian, English plays, musical theatre. Do you have an opening night ritual? Is there something that you, you go through every opening night or perhaps that carries over into performances also, which focuses you, which which quells the excitement? No, no, because I'm I'm a very nervous performer. Um, it's it's mostly just about trying to remember the lines. Uh, but I I uh, I always get into the theatre early, and uh, which is hard when you're working in a very very tiny place like the stables because suddenly you, there's a whole bunch of you all crammed into the tiniest place and everybody's talking so you you can't get away from other people but if you've got your own room it's um i just like the quiet and staring at the script uh and trying not to tell myself that this is the be all and end all of the the show you know opening i hate opening nights it's about getting past opening nights so that you can do the work Uh, i'm intrigued to hear that you're a nervous performer because whenever you're on stage i always feel very relaxed as an audience and um, as Catherine brisbane uh, once said and feel that i'm in safe hands yes yes no i'm i i suffer terribly from nerves uh and always have yeah now you went to boarding school I did. How was that as an experience? Oh, well, it was awful because I couldn't relate to kids my own age at all because, I'd, as I said, I'd grown up around show people. All my parents' friends were witty and it was like living inside Auntie Mame, you know, for a lot of the time. So um, I had a sort of facility for being funny and uh, all my interests were about, you know, the latest show records and the latest movies and suddenly there I was in this sort of almost military very English-styled boarding school where I, I didn't know how to... You know, it was like I, I was on the moon. Surrounded by a bunch of junior Babcocks. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> and uh, so my friends... Luckily, Andrew Sharp was at one of the schools that I went to, but he was a senior, and I was reprimanded for hanging out with him. Now, he'd played the Artful Dodger when I was in Oliver, so we had that connection, and I was told... We were both told that it was inappropriate for a prefect to be hanging out with a junior boy. With a junior boy, right. yeah. So you know it that it was all horrible. <laughs> now I believe you were offered the role of Miranda in The Tempest while you were there, but you knocked it back. I did. Um, I didn't want to play a girl, mind you. You were how old were you? <laughs> oh well, it was it was just after I'd arrived at Cranbrook, and. Uh, I'd done the first school play I did, um, directed by a a teacher named Graham Blasey, who cast me in Hal Porter's The Tower, a very fascinating Australian melodrama, which is um, set during uh, the convict days of Tasmania. And 
uh, the character of Amy, who's a spoiled rich girl who's having an affair with the convict servant, uh, and she is murdered at the end of Act One. But it was a fabulous part, and it was one of those roles like Bernadette where I suddenly realised I could just inhabit her. I don't know how this 13-year-old boy nailed this sort of spoiled teenage mean girl, but... um, I did, and Hal Porter came and saw the show, and he was drunk, and uh, I'm told that at interval, his only comment was, you've got a bloody good Amy. Um, (laughs) So, of course, that was, you know, the seal of approval from the great Hal Porter. Uh, Anyway, then Terence Clark, who was the much-feared maths teacher at our school, who wasn't my teacher, he only dealt with the geniuses in the senior school, uh, announced he was going to do The Tempest. And he came to me and said, I'd like you to play Miranda. Well, uh, warning bells, I thought to play two pretty young girls two years running uh, in this very strict school was my death sentence, you know, in terms of, you know, getting bashed up. So I refused. And uh, Terry changed the play. He, he scrapped The Tempest and chose to do Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party. And we did a reading of it and a sort of an audition and Andrew Sharp was there and um, he was and he was swapping us all round, playing different parts. But I did notice I was one of the youngest in the room and then suddenly there I was playing Meg, the old housewife, <laughs> the sort of the dandy Nichols role. And uh, again, it was a good fit. And uh, he said, how would you feel about doing that? Well, for me, that was a character role. And I thought, okay, you're on. And so uh, I played Meg in the birthday party. Maggie Blinko came and saw it and thought I was one of the teachers from Kambala. <laughs> she said she thought I was a ringian. She thought I was an, an old woman that they had brought in to play the role. Well, it sounds like you were exposed to some quite sophisticated repertoire at school. Uh, well, that was it. I mean, I... I I didn't know from plays when I was a kid because my parents didn't, I don't think, ever take me to any. Uh, I only ever saw musicals. And uh, Mum had done one play, which was The Tunnel of Love. But it was not something that we, we did. So suddenly I was immersed in this new world and I just fell totally in love with it. And I started running away from boarding school on Saturdays, um, pretending to be sick so I wouldn't have to play football, and I'd go and see whatever was on at the Theatre Royal or the Madge. So I started to see Googie Withers in Plaza Suite or Conduct Unbecoming or Spring and Port Wine and all these marvellous pieces. There's a girl in my soup. Uh, it opened my eyes to a whole other side of theatre I didn't know existed. And The Independent. I got to see The Private Miss Jean Brodie, Wait Until Dark, The Ensemble, Lanford Wilson plays, things like that. Uh, it was thrilling to me that, that this world existed. And I thought, ah, this is where I want to be. This is where my heart is. Well, obviously, the, these titles are still stamped in your in your sign. Oh, yeah. You I can remember, remember them all vividly. Yeah. Tell me, a couple of times you've mentioned Oliver. How did you end up in the workhouse? Uh, I Betty Pounder asked me to audition. Uh, why not? You know, they were looking for kids. I'd been on television for two years. I was uh, hanging around um, watching Mum rehearse 
stuff in other shows. Um, I'd been to all the rehearsals when she did Wildcat. So, you know, people knew me in the business. And so it was like, yes, of course, Tony must come in and audition for The Artful Dodger. Well, I blew it. I was very nervous. I was very uncertain. I forgot all my choreography for Consider Yourself. And um, Pounder went to Mum and said, he's too young for this. Um, but would he like to be one of the boys, one of Fagan's boys? He, So I was number four boy in the blue group. And you, you, you were chosen for your number by your height. So... 10 or 12 was the littlest and number one was the tallest. So I was number four. But number four boy had a line in the show, which was books you ordered from the bookseller, sir. So I thought, ah, this is, you know... I, I You've made I, it. I had a reason to stand out. Yeah. And I was only allowed to do the show during my school holidays. So that meant I wasn't able to do the, the initial season in Melbourne, but we would the show was playing in Sydney at the old Theatre Royal during the September school holidays. Now, this is when I was still living in Melbourne, so I was at Glamorgan, the prep school of Geelong Grammar then. And uh, so I was able to join the show for, for Sydney. That's when I met Andrew Sharp, who was the Dodger. And uh, that was also when my father died at the end of that run. Yeah, so we were... And I was supposed to go on with Mum to Adelaide and uh, the headmaster of Glamorgan said, oh, no, 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 I think he should be with boys his own age. It's not good that he should be travelling in a show. So, yes, mum, mum and I were separated immediately after my father's death, which was not good for either of us. No, I can imagine. Um, and, of course, she's playing Nancy and having to sing As Long As He Needs Me eight times a week following she, the death of her husband. And she had time to grieve. No. Because she she went straight back into the show after the funeral, singing that bloody song. And uh, so no wonder everything went kaflooey with her straight afterwards. Mm. And, um, yeah, she, she left the show not long afterwards. I think she did the Perth season and then she sort of collapsed and that was it. And we, we moved to Sydney. Were you close to your dad? Yes, I was. In some ways, I think I was closer to dad than I was to mum at the time because mum was always rehearsing and busy. She was a TV star and she was always at Channel 9. At least with dad, um, I could go down to Channel 9 and sit in his office and, you know, he wasn't... He was a little more available. Um... And I adored, I adored him. Towards what? the end, I felt I was a bit of a disappointment to him because I think he thought I was a bit of a mummy's boy. Dad was very much a sort of a beach person and, and uh, sort of pretty outdoorsy, and I wasn't. Uh, I wanted to sit at home and play my show records. And I remember him saying one day, oh, you're getting more like your mother every day. And I remember being really stung by that. I thought, oh, I've let him down. Um... So, and, but we did get to spend a wonderful day together um, before he died because he came up to Sydney to see the show and I wasn't on that day. It was a Saturday. And so we spent that whole day together and we had photos taken in a photo booth together, and, uh, which I still have. And uh, that was sort of the last 
day that I ever spent with him. Do you think of him much? I think of him all the time. Yeah. Think, all the time. I think we do with lost parents, don't we? Yeah. They're, they're constantly there. Um, a Hard God by Peter Kanar, a very raw and intense work. You, it's, uh, and it's become a classic in the Australian canon. Um, <coughs> in one of our podcasts, we talked to Donna Lee, who talks about her wonderful mother, Gloria Dawn, in the title role. But you're playing a young, young man coming to terms with his sexuality. Yes, that was another one of those... Sometimes you just go for a role and it fits like a glove. And I walked in. I didn't know who John Bell was. I was doing um, The he Legend was, of King. Was, John was directing, yeah? John was directing. Yeah. Uh, I'd seen a couple of things at the Nimrod um, and I'd loved what I'd seen, but I hadn't made the connection as to who this John Bell person was. And I was doing The Legend of King O'Malley um, at the Richbrook Theatre, which was a notorious disaster directed by Michael Boddy, we ran a week, uh, largely because there was an an electricity strike in Sydney that we got blacked out for four days. But I went to pick up my money and there was a sign on the door like the following Thursday after the strike had been going for four days saying that we had closed and none of us had been informed. And what I found out was that Gordon Chater had been to see the matinee on the previous Saturday and had marched backstage and said, this production is so bad it should not be allowed to continue. Oh, dear. And I think they took his advice and they actually took advantage of the electrical strike, unless they pulled the plug themselves on the entire city grid. Um... But uh, so it was during that, that, those four days where we were all sitting around waiting for the electricity to come back on um, that I got sent to the audition. And Andrew Sharp was in O'Malley with me. He was the understudy. He was the swing. And as I said, he'd played the Apple Dodger. So he and I were brought in to read these two roles of these two boys who have this love affair in 1946. And he told me who John Bell was. And he said, oh, he's really famous. And, you know, this is a very prestige gig if you get it. And I was so relaxed and had absolutely no nerves. And I I just channeled Joe Cassidy. And it was like, well, the part's yours. We were, like, virtually hired on the spot. And it was fascinating because John, in the rehearsals, did a lot of theatre games with the two of us where he had us playing the roles like, you know, all right, now you're in Spain and Tony, you're a senorita and Andrew, you're a Toreador. Or we do, we had lots and lots of chairs and it was like, all right, well, every time you feel you have the upper hand in this scene, stack another chair and stand on it and all that. And it wasn't until long after we opened that uh, Andrew and I were getting drunk in a hotel room with John Bell uh, I think we were on tour with the show after, long after we'd done the Nimrod season. And I said, why did you play all those theatre games with us? He said, because you were both ready to open three days after the we rehearsed. <laughs> he said, there was nothing to do with you. He said, I had to keep you occupied for four weeks. He said, because it, you were both so comfortable and so right for the parts. Was that um, your first taste at realism in, in a play? I mean, yes. a lot of the other stuff seems to be heightened lyrical work that you've been doing. But was Yes, it yes, it was. It came... Um, yes, it was. Were you aware of your own sexuality at that point? Yes, I had been since I was 14. Okay, right. So, and, and never had any problems with it. So, 
it was something that I did not shy from playing on stage. Uh, you know, I had no thing of, you know, no protective thing that goes up in your head of, oh, I don't want the audience to think I'm gay. I, it was like, well, this is the truth of the character, so I will play this. And I think that was why directors started to ask for me, like Spoiled came straight on top of that. And that was when Catherine Brisbane said to me, yes, darling, lovely performance. It's time you started looking at other sorts of roles because you're going to be tarred with this brush forever. And, you know, you're too good for that. Do you think you suffered from a bit of typecasting? Oh, yeah, of course. But I I wouldn't have known how to play. Those. I mean, there were enough young Ocker guys around who could do that. And it was interesting that there was nobody really doing what I was doing at the time. I sort of filled a bit of a niche. Uh, so that, that was good. So your relationship with John Bell... Did that maybe lead to your first experience of Shakespeare with with Much Ado About Nothing, or, or first adult Shakespeare? Yes, but that you... came the next. My next experience was in a Voices, which came after Terry Clark took me to the Hunter Valley Theatre Company, uh, which was wonderful because I got to play a whole bunch of roles there that I would never have had the chance to play, like Glass Menagerie and Equus and stuff like that. Um, and I got to do a Happy and Holy Occasion. Then. Um, Louis Naura wrote in a Voices, and I know that John wanted Drew Forsyth, and Drew was unavailable, and then it floated my way. And uh, John led me by the hand and taught me how to play that role. He taught me how to break down a scene uh, because there was a very, very long monologue at the end, which was a stream of consciousness rant that went for a page and a half where the character is insane and he taught me how to play a different thought on every paragraph which had never occurred to me you know I again bravura relying on you know presentation you know oh I can do loud and fast and glossy uh but he went no try this Rather than just learning a slab of words yeah. and, and reciting them. And that, of course, is, you know, invaluable because most young actors don't know how to do that, how to break down a speech so that it it's coming from a different thought process on There's different beats. Line. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so did that equip you a little bit more to tackle Shakespeare with, with Much Ado? Well, uh, then he, uh, after Inner Voices, he said, do you want to stay and do Twelfth Night and uh, Much Ado? And I, I was petrified by the whole concept. I'd never studied Shakespeare. I hadn't done anything at school like that. And what he did was we, we came in, um, there were five of us, I think, who were coming in afresh because he, he'd already had a, like a little rep company there at Nimrod who had already had a big success with Much Ado the previous year. So we were a revival and I was coming in to replace John Walton. Um, so he brought in the new people and what he did was we worked with the sonnets because they're, they're letters, they're love letters and they're, they're actually really accessible. And he got us to read those. Uh, well, of course, we suddenly realised it wasn't this foreign language uh, and it it took the, the scare off, off it. 
And once we found our way in through the sonnets and then started to read a Shakespeare script, it was like we had the key that, oh, I see, yes, we can do this naturalistically. Not naturalistically, but, you know, it, it made sense. And uh, so, yeah, after that, it was, it was great. Is it difficult coming into a company which is already established? And uh, God, yes, because yeah. we didn't have the luxury with with much ado of of all sitting around a table and reading it and breaking it down. They'd all been playing it uh, the previous year with too much acclaim, and it, uh, the gimmick of that production was that they were all Italians. Like so, they were doing fruit shop Italian acting. And we were all on our feet, and suddenly there were 13 actors all screaming at each other in Italian, and they were bonded. Well, we were like, it was, we were Christians and lions, the five of us. We were standing there trembling with terror, going, what's going on? We we had no idea what was going on in this production, and so it was a trial by fire. It really was. But by the end... We, uh, we we were very much at home and uh, Peter Carroll and um, I remember saying, oh, yes, darling, you know, <laughs> you're fine, you know, you've, you've slotted in seamlessly. So I was very, very chuffed about that. How many years did you spend with the Hunter Valley Theatre Company? It was just one. Then just Terry, Terry fired us all. Terry, uh, because I, I said I would like to stay and he said no 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 because by then you know our idea of a good time was sitting on the bus stop in hunter street watching the people walk by and uh we'd all gone a bit sort of troppo and uh so terry fired robert alexander and kerry walker and i and made us go back to the big city fly my little birds and uh he hired a new bunch of actors uh, what what is it like being part of a company though, and working on going from um, play to play to play with the same group of actors? It's wonderful. I mean, it's also um, we were living together as well, which was probably a mistake because yeah. we all got onto each other's nerves, and there was a lot of fighting and and jealousies and and factions forming. Um, but it was also we were so comfortable with each other. And we had a great ease on stage that is a real shortcut. It's um, it's invaluable training. And also that thing of rehearsing a play during the day and playing the previous one at night. Um, because it stretches you and it forces you by the very nature of rep to be playing parts that probably you would not get elsewhere. So... Uh, for me to be playing that role in Happy and Holy Occasion, which was a sort of very humorless, sadistic um, Irish steel worker who was 20 years my senior, uh, and to pull it off was, uh, was so rewarding and gratifying for me. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a thrill. Up Terry Clark pops up in your career again, because along with Nick Enright, he writes The Venetian Twins. He does. Now, is that your first taste of an Australian musical? I think it was. And Nick and I, again, went back as far as Oliver. I'd known him. Nick uh, was in Oliver? Nick, Nick came in uh, when we did the revival um, at the, the Tivoli in 1968, we did a Christmas season and Rod Dunbar had been playing Noah Claypole, but he had moved on to doing You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown by that stage, playing Snoopy. So Nick came in 
fresh out of school. I think he was 15 or 16 or something. And um, this extremely enthusiastic uh, young man, who wasn't terribly good, um, suddenly was there, obviously thrilled beyond measure to be in a professional show. Uh, so I that started a friendship because I used to run away from boarding school uh, while he was at uni and I'd go and visit him uh, and he would... We'd, we'd discuss our plans, like, you know, a young Sondheim and a young Harold Prince about how <laughs> what we were going to do with Australian theatre. And he used to write review material that he would send off. Uh, and so he would read his review material to me in his kitchen over cups of tea and we'd discuss all the latest musicals and all of that. So, uh, yeah, suddenly when we were in the industry, he looked after me for a very long time. He wrote a lot of uh, projects that he would come to me and say, I want you to be a part of this. Uh, Mongrels? Mongrels, um, Venetian Twins, a, a radio play called Watching Over Israel. Um, Daylight Savings? Daylight Saving. I got a Guernsey in after John O'May had uh, done that in Melbourne. and uh, I saw you do that in Adelaide. Yeah, yeah. Um, Venetian Twins, I did the demo record for Chamber Music. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of... Um, projects that uh, and of course uh, Poor Student which was Nick's uh, one of Nick's last plays yeah uh, yeah it's at, at Marion Street wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I replaced uh, that was written for John Crummel but then John um, because of his stroke was unable to do it so uh, I ended up getting that one as well stepped in yeah on Venetian Twins you also met a very special gentleman I did on the first day of rehearsal. It was weird because uh, there have been moments where his name had come up. Um, I did a playwrights conference and Kerry Dwyer directed me in a play and she suddenly said, do you know an actor called Tony Taylor? I said, no. She said, hmm, you'd be interesting together. Um, and I kept hearing about him in the Hills Family show when I was doing Inner Voices in Nimrod and on our night off, some of the cast were going to see it um, when they came up to do a season in Sydney. And they said, do you want to come? I said, no, I don't want to go and see those hippies from Melbourne. I'm a professional. <laughs> um, so uh, there had been moments where our paths could have crossed and they didn't. And for some reason, I envisioned this tall, blonde, butch, surfy person called Tony Taylor. And I walked in on the first day of rehearsal and there was this elfin, curly-haired, black <laughs> rather black-haired boy, rather rather pretty. And I actually, it was love at first sight from me. I was sort of like, boy, oi, 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 oi. Uh, not from him. Um, he couldn't have cared less. But, uh, yes, I was most impressed. And uh, 38 years later, we are still together. Congratulations. 39 years, actually. That's last month. Yeah. Had you had long-term relationships before then? Uh, no, I had... Boyfriends, yeah, yeah, but no, but nothing that goes boy, 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 no, 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 fabulous. Torchong trilogy. Now, is that that was a breakout performance did, that brought you national attention? It was my first time above the title in a commercial show, too. Yeah, what does that show mean to you now? Oh, um, I'm still so protective of it. Um, I, I went and saw the Michael Urey do it in New York last year and sat and hated it. Um, it it was so important to me. It was just one of those things. Robert Alexander, who I'd been at the Hunter Valley Theatre Company with, saw it 
in New York and came back and said, there's a play over there that I think you'd be very good in. And I hadn't really heard anything about it. And he brought me the script and it was, again, one of those cases where I went, yep, I can do this. And there were very few people up for it, for that role, for some reason. And it was the original Broadway director, Peter Pope. Is it... it Actors at the time, were they scared of playing gay, do you think? I don't know. There was a lot of... uh, He had to be young. He had to be um, a New York Jewish, um, Brooklyn... uh, You know, it it covered a 10-year age range. I, I just think there were very few people who were considered right for it in Australia at the time. So certainly I know when I went, there was one other actor who was reading. And it was interesting that I heard him read and he was sort of doing a very sort of Al Pacino sort of take on it. And I thought, no, that's not it. That's wrong. That's wrong. My version's right. And uh, I went in and the director said, your voice is too well produced. He said, uh, and I, obviously he had Harvey Firestein's voice in his head. Now, I'd never even heard Harvey Firestein speak. So I was doing my version of it uh, without even thinking about how Harvey sounded. I was just doing Tony Sheldon's voice with a Brooklyn accent. Um, and so I know he was reluctant to give me the role because he felt I sounded wrong. And I remember at the end he said, go away and work on the script and listen to a lot of American television. Um and I was told I wasn't going to be be given an answer for a long time. And Sue Natras and Gail Esler, who were working at Williamson's at the time, turned up on my doorstep two days later with a bottle of champagne at nine o'clock in the morning. And they said, we're putting you out of your misery. You got the gig. Because they'd both been stage managers on Oliver when I was 10. Right. So they, they felt like family, you know, coming to, to tell me the good news. In Act 3, the character of Arnold Becker, his mother arrives. They have quite a heated moment during that act. What was that like playing every night with the the wonderful Myra de Groot? Well, yes, I mean, the, when you are blessed with an actor who walks in and you just go, we have been together in a former life or something. I mean, she was, she was from my world. She was a, a West End musical theatre person who'd been in Pyjama Game and, you know, she'd, she'd been in... Agnes Gooch in Mame, and I think she'd even been in Wildcat, which was another show that Mum did. And we both spoke the same language. And as soon as we started acting together, it was like we were the lunts. I mean, total trust. Our timing was the same. Our sense of humour was the same. We couldn't keep our hands off each other. You know, it was... uh, We just adored each other. So, yeah, it was bliss. It was sheer bliss. Madonna and Child, which you wrote. Yes. A show for yourself and your mother and uh, Ron Crager. Yeah. Um, Was that the first time you've got to perform with your mum since Oliver? Uh, No, we'd done cabaret stuff together. At one point I went into her act as a sort of... It was exactly the same situation as Donna Lee and Gloria Dawn, where she'd get somebody out of the audience to sing and the audience would think that it was just some person and then suddenly, halfway through the song, you turn out to be fabulous and um, uh, and then the, the person says, ladies and gentlemen, my son, 
Tony Shell, you know, and Gloria and Donna had the same shtick in their act. Um, I used to do Rhythm of Life with Mum. Uh, so we'd done that. I I had worked in this club, uh, Rose Jackson, the, the drag queen, um, had a club named Roses in Goldburn Street. And I'd done You and the Night in the House Wine, which Tony Taylor and I had written for Nimrod. And uh, the the guy who ran that venue said, how would you feel about doing a show with your mum here? An evening of, you know, hits from your shows. Now, mum at this stage had moved to America. And I said to mum, I don't want you to come all this way to come out and sing a medley, you know, and we've done the, the cabaret stuff. I said, if I try and write us a theatre piece, how would you feel about that? And so mum had written her autobiography at this stage and she'd revealed all the stuff about the drug thing and all of that. So I thought, well, she's obviously not shy about playing the dark part of our lives. Um, I said, let's let's go with a hypothetical story that we have not seen each other for 10 years, that you moved to America and that we lost contact because I was angry with you that, for leaving and, uh, and that we are working on a show together and I start to punish you for all the, the things, the, you know, the wrongs. You say hypothetical, but was there some truth in that? Well, yeah, because we used the whole thing that she put me in a boarding school and gone off and left me there and, you know, which, which were things. Now, I thought all oh, this was great grist for a dramatic piece and Mum, being the total professional that she is, would just come in and do it. And I was rewriting and we were here and there was, you know, it was a fabulous atmosphere. What I didn't know until my mother wrote her second book was that she was going home every night and crying because she thought I really was punishing her. Well, can I can I come up with a quote here? This is from the second instalment of her autobiography, Still a Gypsy. She says about her time doing Madonna and Child, but I didn't know then what I know now about emotionally caused illness. In hindsight, I realised I was racked with guilt about Tony and being forced to play it out on stage every night. I think I was subconsciously screaming, enough, I'm sorry I sent you to a boarding school and followed my own ambition, but I'm trying to make it up for it now. Can't you see that? Couldn't you see that? But that's what the script said. Yeah. And so, you know, I actually think, I mean, my my mother is a very um, reactive person. And uh, she does over-worry about everything. Um, so I was, I was mortified when I read the book that she had gone through all this and not said anything to me. Um, mind you, it was too late by that stage. I mean, what could, what could I have done? Cancelled the show. But um, she still thinks that, that uh, I was uh, working something out, like, you know, a bit of therapy by writing the show. Whereas I still, to this day, maintain that I wasn't. It was, it was great material and it was silly not to use it. You know, write what you know. Well, what I knew was that we had two performers who could play the shit out of that storyline and it was our story and, you know, it was great. I remember Dennis Watkins coming and seeing the show and saying, why did you write this? 
And I said exactly what I just said. Why not? It's, uh, it's better than just getting up and doing a whole evening of show tunes. It was a fabulous hook to hang a show on. And uh, we ended up doing it for a long time. We took uh, the Victorian Arts Centre, bought it, Sue Natris again, and we, we toured it around the country. Although we had to change the title to Return Engagement because everybody thought it was going to be the real Madonna, so we weren't allowed to use Madonna and Child. <laughs> I think it was the, the late 80s. I saw you at the Melbourne Theatre Company in a play by Paul Rudnick called I Hate Hamlet. Yeah. It was so lovely to see you in a role... Uh, playing John Barrymore, this large theatrical beast. That must have been fun. Oh, it was it was great. Um, I'm always surprised when people ask me to do anything. Um, I have absolutely no perspective on how I'm perceived by directors or audiences, really. So when somebody comes to me and says, would you like to play John Barrymore? It's like, really? Um but then I went away and studied him and I hit on his voice. I, suddenly I was able to nail his voice and that was my way in. Um, I had a ball doing that. And, I, um, and, of course, it came with a lot of baggage from the Broadway production that Nicole Williamson had attacked the young actor opposite him on stage and had been brought up on charges of equity. And, oh, right. Yeah, okay. Oh, yes, right, it was wow. a lot of, lot of drama associated with the play. Um, and it was also Paul Rudnick's first play. It was before he became really well-known. Um, and I got to do it with Cameron Daddo, which was a joy. Uh, I loved working with, with Cameron. Uh, and then I got asked to do it a second time for the Melbourne Theatre Company with Guy Pearce, and he was fresh off um, Neighbours, and it was his first play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and to work with Joan Sidney and Gary Day and Nicky Went. So I got two cracks uh, two two productions, same director, but two different productions, different set, different costumes, different sword fights. Um, yeah, that that was a, that was. A very Do you know the the Kaufman and Hart play the royal family? Yes, yeah, it's it's wonderful. I'll yes, my friend, my, my friend and landlord Will Swenson has just done the musical version. Oh, in America, right? Yeah, who's written by the William mus- Finn? William Finn, right? Mm. Yeah, I saw it, uh, it was a couple of years ago, maybe with Rosemary Harris and Jan Maxwell. In New York. Oh, right. Yeah, yes. at Manhattan Theatre Club. Yes. Fantastic. Private Lives. Now, that's a show that brought up uh, a bout of performance anxiety for you, all triggered by a lighter. Yeah. Um, again, um, a part that when, when um, Roger Hodgman wrote to me and said, Louis Fiander can't do the tour with Pamela, would you like to come in and replace? And I said... Why would you want me? Get Hugo Weaving. And there was a sort of a long-suffering sigh from Roger. I think it was like, oh, here we go again. You know, his, his, his first instinct is to recast the role with somebody else, which is what I always do. Um, he said, no, we're asking you to do it. Uh, I felt very... I had a real inferiority about it. Um, I was carrying, I was at my heaviest. I was carrying a lot of weight. I felt I looked wrong. I just felt I was the wrong type. Um, but I took it because I went, well, this is, this is a wonderful opportunity. You know, I've never done Noel Coward and, and, you know, it's a gift. It's a gift of a show. And if other people feel that I could do it, well, then I will. But then one night in Sydney, I lit the famous cigarette lighter to light Amanda's cigarettes, you know, on the balcony scene, and it didn't light. And uh, that became a thing 
that I've tried replacing the lighter and, and then it started to stress me out and I was shaking a lot. And people people were snickering and then I couldn't pick up any props. I couldn't carry the tray of glasses on. And I was going through a really, really bad time within myself. I, my depression was at its worst. Um, I was drinking very heavily. Um, I attempted to do away with myself during that run. I tried to walk into the ocean um, at one on a Friday night after the show in the middle of the night. I, I think I drank an entire bottle of vodka and walked into the sea and uh, was doing quite well at drowning myself and a dead dog floated past me. No. And I, I screamed and got out of the water. <laughs> and then had to go and do the matinee. So I was, I was, I was a wreck anyway during that period. Has, um, have you had depression all your life? Yeah. Yeah. It's always been there. And you've got coping mechanisms for it now? Yeah, I do now. It's still, you know, the, it's not depression anymore. It's sort of just unhappiness now, I think. Um, but, but then it was, it was almost insurmountable. Yeah. And that, that was a bad time. I believe you were not happy on the producers. No, I, I never liked the show. I never liked the show. Uh, I loved the film, but when I, when um, the show came out, I thought, all right, well, I'd like to play Max Bialystok if I'm going to do that. Um, they, I just found it all so one-dimensional, and I thought the character of Roger Debris was particularly one-dimensional. John Frost asked me three times to audition, and three times I said no. And I think he came back a fourth time, and that was when Tony Taylor said, look, you know, you owe him at least the courtesy of the audition. He said, when somebody offers you a role three times, you know, don't you think this has your name on it? And I said, um, I really want to audition for for Roger uh, for uh, Max Bialystok. Well, I, I went in to do a, a film audition and they'd made no provision for me really there was no set there was no light it was like you know well you're the first one and so I felt their heart is not in this to film me um I later found out you know that they then filmed other people Peter Cousins and Henry Zepps did a filmer and you know other people I think I read with Philip Dodd uh so I I don't know whether they even sent my film off because I think John so much wanted me to be doing Roger Debris. Um, so finally I went in and uh, booked it. And I thought, well, all right, I better do this. Do you see, with a big commercial musical like that, we're getting the Australian production of a Broadway hit. Do you get to see the original creatives very much? Susan Stroman came out and spent three days around the table with us and uh, very slowly sort of talked us through the show and she listened to all our line readings and uh, she made any changes that needed to be made, like Bert Newton was unable to do the choreography, so all of France's choreography got taken out. Um, but then she left and it was she said, I'll be back for the tech uh, for Tech Week, and Tony Taylor turned to me because t- Tony, by that stage, had been hired to be the uh, the cover for Franz and Max. So he ended up playing Max Bialystok, and I didn't. Um, but he said, "I don't think we're ever going to see that woman again." And by golly, he was right. 
when the tech came, uh, she, we, she never showed her face. So we were put in by a stage manager and uh, the choreographer, Warren Carlyle, who sort of saved my life. Warren um, nursed me through the show. He was very solicitous of me and he gave me a lot of choreography to do as Roger Debris in the Hitler number. And I, I'd never tapped in the audition and I kept saying to him, how, uh, why are you giving me all this tap? He said, oh, I'm, I'm not even giving you the, the Gary Beach version. I'm giving you the Leroy Reams version. He did more tapping in the road company. I said, how did you know I could tap? Because I couldn't at that time, really. And he said, oh, I just guessed. But uh, apparently that's a trick of Warren's, is that he, he j- believes in you to such an extent that you you do it. And so he turned that number into the tour de force that it was. And, uh, yeah, but I I used to... I was so unhappy in the role because I, I thought there's got to be another way to play this other than the way... Because I was being forced into Gary Beach's performance by the by the creatives. I mean, like, right down to... They even made you dye your hair. They made me dye my hair black to look like Gary Beach. And they would say things like, now, this is where you brush the hair out of your eyes. No, don't use your forefinger. Use the third finger on your right hand. I mean, it was it was down to that. It was, it was insanity. And uh, I used to go home every night and relive the show in my head all over again. I used to do the show twice a night because I'd go home and put myself through this torture of there's got to be another way to do it. Well, there's not. When a role is that one-dimensional, you can't... The only way you can do it without subverting the material is to play it as written and directed. So that's what I did, you know. And, um, yeah, I didn't I didn't enjoy it. I really didn't. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, you've played all around the world, in Australia, London, Toronto, and, of course, Broadway. Yeah. How was it working with those different companies? I mean, were there cultural differences which... Yeah, the, um, the only one that I had a really bad time was London because I didn't feel that they they got it. I felt that the, the English cast um, sort of defaulted into panto setting because I think they thought it was they were all fairy tale characters and that it was all so outlandish and the funny costumes and everything that they, they didn't really make any attempt to find the truth in any of it. And I think you have to with that show. There's got to be a heart and an honesty to those people. Otherwise, who who is there to barrack for? Who is there to relate to? And I felt everybody in London was so busy trying to be funny. I just found it really, really hard to, to fit in, especially after the wonderful experience I'd had. Because London was London the second port of call. Yeah, we'd we'd done we'd done Sydney, Melbourne, returned to Sydney, and that was when the first cast changes started to happen. Like Todd McKenney came in. Um, oh no, no, we went to New Zealand before the return to Sydney. So uh, and, and then then Todd came in, and we'd had Bill Hunter came in, and you know, so there was marvelous people coming in and out of the show. Um, and that wonderful original cast of, of Jeremy Stanford and, and Daniel. So then, yes, London, London. I had a really, really bad time, and I quit. I, I played my contract out um, for a year, but then I said to Simon and 
Gary McQuinn, you're going to have to look for somebody else because I'm not going to re-sign. I don't belong here, I said. And uh, that was when the magic words were, yeah, but you, you'll still come to New York. Well, I didn't even know that was on that the cards, was on the cards for cards, me. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because I knew in London, you know, that Michael Crawford had auditioned and Ian McKellen had expressed interest in doing it. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, there's no way I'm going to get a look in for Broadway. But... By then, Gary and Simon had become my cheer squad and they said, no, we we want to bring you over. And uh, that made everything better after that. Uh, that that uh, The New York experience was so fabulous that I, I was able to recover from, from London. Um, I read that you had a moment, you're standing centre stage on the palace, at the Palace Theatre playing Bernadette. And you realised that that you're making history. This was a lead Australian actor in a homegrown Australian musical. Yes, that must have been. And and it was the the fact that I'd created the role at home because um, certainly Boy from Oz had gone over with Hugh, but Todd, that was Todd's show as far as I was concerned. Um, so I was the first one to come over in the role that he'd created. And, uh, yeah, and it, I was standing centre stage during my There Will Be Another Song For Me moment in a spotlight with a champagne glass raised above my head looking a million bucks and uh, at the Palace Theatre and I just went, wow, this, this was the dream. And I'd forgotten that this had been the dream. You know, there'd been... You know, at one point they talked about bringing Venetian twins over and at one point when I was doing producers and I'd said to the musical director, who's playing Roger Debris in when the show goes to London? And he said, oh, at the moment, you. And I went, what? And he said, they can't cast it. Uh, so that there was that was dangled in front of me that I was going to go to the West End as Roger. Uh, so there'd been little spangles had been dropped, but I by then I'd become so disillusioned and thought, this is never going to happen. Um, that when it finally did happen, I'd... I hadn't noticed. It happened without my even knowing it was it was happening. <laughs> and then the icing on the cake, you're nominated for a Tony Award. And, you know, I, I wasn't surprised. I sort of thought it was going to happen. I don't know why, but I wasn't surprised. I also knew I wasn't going to win. I knew absolutely with 100% certainty that I wasn't going to win. Um, the Olivier nomination in London was a surprise. Uh, but I also, I was the third year there'd been... Was this Men in Dresses? Are you going to talk men, about It this? was the Men in Dresses. Harvey Firestein and Hairspray. Yep. Um, and in Lacage, uh, Douglas Hodge. In Lacage. Yes. So I was following that. And in Australia, I, I lost the helpman to Iota in Hedwig. So it was like I didn't have a history of winning this award for, for that role. Um, and I've always maintained that it was because I didn't have a big flashy number in the show. There was a moment in New York in the rehearsal because they brought Jerry Mitchell on board as sort of insurance, as a production supervisor, and then they didn't let him do anything, um, which was weird. But at one point, Jerry looked at the um, flashback sequence in Act Two where young Bernadette does a fine romance yes. and old Bernadette, me, is just sitting in a kitchen, in a kitchen. chair uh, while it's all happening in my head. And Jerry said, I want to bring Tony into the number. And there was this one magical day when I got choreographed into the number and it became my number. 
And I went home and said to Tony Taylor, I think Jerry Mitchell just got me a Tony nomination. I said, I've suddenly, for the first time, I've got a big flashy number in the show. I was so excited. And I went in the next day and Simon had cut it. Oh. And he said, no, I, I think it, it should be the flashback. And I went, oh, bum. But then I got the nomination anyway. So something had hardwired into me that, I, that it was going to happen, I think. Um, and then I sat there and I was up against the two Mormon boys. I was up against uh, Joshua uh, Henry for, you know, Scottsboro Boys. I mean, uh, Norbert for Catch Me If You Can. As soon as I saw his big number in that Catch Me If You Can, which I thought was a terrible show, uh, but I went, oh, well, there, there's your win because you've got that fabulous big dance number, you know. But, yes, but the whole Broadway experience was wonderful. I loved it. I loved everything about it. And that was what decided me to stay over there. Your portrait of Sardis as My well. portrait of Sardis. And... Um, Getting to perform at the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade and to do to do the Today Show, the, you know, which I'd watched Brian Gumble and Katie Couric for all those years, and uh, the View, and uh, being flown to Chicago to do the, um, the Rosie O'Donnell Show, and all those things that come with doing a Broadway show. Um, the East, I was a judge for the Easter Bonnet. Um, you you are so welcomed into that community if they love you. Uh, they they wrap their arms around you and but you you go along with a with a hard drive of knowledge about well every... that was the other wonderful thing yeah that um, I knew who all those people were and when I got the Theatre World Award um, for outstanding Broadway debut and I've got up and Tova Felch who, who had seen the show in Australia said I want to present it to him and she made a speech about coming out and seeing the show in Australia and. And I got up and I said, I know who every single person in this room is. I have followed your career since I was a child because I have every edition of the Theatre World books going back to 1944. And I said, and I've seen you rise from the chorus to stardom. I've seen stage managers become directors. I've seen people move from regional theatre to New York and back again. I've seen people who retired come out of retirement for to do 70 girls 70 or ballroom or something you know i said um and you may think that you're just getting on with your lives but you are inspiring people on the well this rumble started in the theater and people started to cheer and stand up and i said you know and and now here i am amongst you the people who have inspired me to come here and I said just know just know that the work you have all been doing has counted for something well the organizers of the theater world award said to me you can come back any time you like and present an award and I did I presented for the next four years I uh, was able to to present awards and I, last year I presented Cheetah Rivera with her lifetime achievement award so uh that's that's when you know you you're part of the the community, you know, when they call you in and say, "Oh, do you want to give an award to Cheetah Rivera?" Yes, please. Is it a hard slog living in the city and and looking for work, trying to find work over I'm, there? You've been quite fortunate, haven't you? I've been very fortunate. Yeah. Um, but it's the shock is um, the money is terrible right. over there because unless you're actually in a Broadway show, um, you're you're working. Off Broadway, 
and it's it's not a living wage, and a lot of stuff you're doing for nothing, um, just and, to be seen. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what I have loved is that I've been doing a lot of workshops of new material, which is why I moved over there because there's out here there's no works in development really to be a part of. Over there, you're constantly getting new plays and... and uh, well, Empire sounds exciting. Empire was, was great fun, but that had been kicking around for more than 10 years by the time I came came on board. Um, and so I did um, two workshops and a production in California of that. I did Ever After. Um, I did um, Bandwagon at City Centre. Was there any thought that that might go to, to Broadway? Well, the Weislers, who were the producers, uh, actually at our opening night party said, yes, we're picking this up, we're, we're moving it. And Brian Stokes Mitchell turned to me and said, I'll do it only if you do it. And I thought, oh, my dear. And, you know, there I was with Tracy Ullman <laughs> calling me a genius and um, Michael um, McKean, you know, from... Uh, Spinal Tap. Yes, Spinal Tap calling me maestro and, you know, all of this going on. And then the next day that the the review comes out and says it's it's a terrible piece of rubbish, uh, it said Tony Sheldon by default um, was playing the the funniest character on stage. Uh, And we never heard another word. That was gone. Gone. Uh, So, yeah, you know, people, it, it all lives and dies on a review. Well, you made it back to Broadway with Amelie. I did, which, which I tried to, to leave. Right. I had such little faith that that was going to work because, again, I'd been attached in it for two, two productions in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and I felt that the work that was being done on it was actually the, op- the opposite of improving it. And I believe that, that they made changes almost daily that you had to sort of learn and then go in and... We did, but we did 11 versions of the opening number. It was like nobody really knew what to do with this show. And we switched leading ladies midstream and uh, a couple of people got fired, and um, but they kept holding on to me and I was the one trying to get away. Um, I felt... It was one of those shows where I felt anybody could have been playing my role and that I really wasn't contributing anything unique. Um, they rewrote my song uh, twice. I had a different song between San Francisco and L.A. And then uh, we came to New York and they, they even, you know, pulled me out of a production of Big River that I wanted to do at, at Encores. Um, you know, the posters were printed with my photo on it and they, they pulled me out. And then, of course, we opened. Well, the open, uh, when we went to Broadway with Amelie, I walked into my dressing room with a hairbrush and a bottle of eye drops, and said, "We're not going to be here for any longer." Than, <laughs> and every, you know, I don't think that uh, made me very popular no, with the others in well, the cast. No. But um, yeah, we were out after fifty-eight performances. Uh, is is um, regional theatre something that, well, it pays the bills, but is that something you need to do oh, to build up I, the credits? Well, yeah, but I was thrilled because um, I got to do Victor Victoria. Um, oh, played I played Toddy, Toddy right? yeah, yeah, which I loved. I got to play Pickering in Minneapolis. I, 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 who thought I was going to go to Minneapolis? I would move to Minneapolis tomorrow. There are 70 theatre companies in the Minneapolis area. Wow. Um, and I, I, I played Pickering for nearly four months at the Guthrie, uh, one of the most respected theatres in America. I had the best time. 
Um, I got to do Hello Dolly at good speed. I got to play Horace Vandergelder. Um, and then that rather real-fated production of Roar of the Grease Paint, I got to play Sir there. Um, I got to play Pelinor twice in Camelot at the Kennedy Centre, I got to play it, and in Houston. Um, yeah, so it wasn't just about paying the bills, it was about playing fantastic characters. That You know, you get to put your own stamp on those characters too. I felt I solved van der Gelder to an extent. Um, Harvey Evans, uh, you know, the perennial golden age of Broadway chorus boy, said to me, he said, you're the only van der Gelder, and he was on Broadway with three or four dollies, he said, you're the only van der Gelder who ever made any sense of it. So, you know, when you hear things like that, you go, thank you, you yes, know. Yeah. It's very exciting. Yeah. How long will the US adventure be, do you think? I don't know, because at the moment, I'm not in a great rush to go back. Um, I'm going to stay for a while and do another show. Um, uh, so I, as long as that political situation's going on over there, that's not the America I moved to. I was very lucky to arrive sort of as the, the Obama years were start, starting and to be in the presence of that great statesman was so inspiring and now suddenly we've done this ridiculous turnabout where you know you can't even afford the tax situation for um, an actor to to live there you can't claim any deductions anymore you know it's like why would I want to go over there and struggle and just be angry and unhappy all the time what's the point I'll stay and keep working here and then my, my green card's eligible until uh, for another uh, four years. So I can go back. I will miss my friends mightily and the camaraderie that I've established. And my landlady, Audra MacDonald, and my landlord, Will Swenson, <laughs> I will miss greatly. Um, but uh, at the moment, that it doesn't seem logical to go back into that environment. Look, we haven't even discussed your writing and directing credits, which also are extensive, so another time perhaps. Okay. (laughs) Tony, uh, look, you're an actor I've long admired. It's been delightful to sit down and discuss some of your performances with you today. Thank you for being our our last guest on Stages for this this first season. Thank you. Uh, It's been an absolute thrill and delight, so thank you. Thank you, Pete. Bless you. What an inspiring conversation to complete the first year of Stages. I encourage you to catch up on any of the guests you may have missed through the year. All are available from our hosting platforms, Wooshka and Apple Podcasts. If you haven't already, please subscribe so that you receive each new episode as it becomes available. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast. And that's it. Season one done. The show is taking a short break now. Stages will be back in January of 2019 with more great guests and fascinating stories from creative artists. Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'll see you later.